Hi everyone, thanks for joining us for our Lean Startup webcast. Today's topic is from SF2NY, how founders of Farm Girl Flower and Meteor launched their Lean Startups. I'm Felicia Chanko, Production Manager of Lean Startup Company. If you enjoyed today's show, check out our September 15th webcast with Laura Klein and join us at Lean Startup Week in San Francisco on October 31st to November 6th. Visit leanstartup.co for more information. Our two speakers today are Christina Stemble and Mamie Camper-Stewart. Christina is the founder and CEO of Farm Girl Flowers, a company innovating on the consumer flower industry. Mamie is the founder and CEO of Meteor, a company that empowers organizations to leverage their meetings to drive productivity, build a healthy company culture, and achieve greater results. Moderating today is Aubrey Smith, founder of an innovation strategy consulting firm, a lean startup coach, and an esteemed lean startup faculty member. A few housekeeping notes. We will be taking questions from the audience via the live chat. If you'd like to ask a question, please flag it by starting with a Q colon before your question. This is an hour-long program, and the recording will be available after this live webcast. Take it away, Aubrey. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us. Today, I'm very fortunate to be joined by two strong female founders of businesses that use the Lean Startup to manage uh, their business. Christina has a unique story, an incredible story to tell about taking on a very saturated and competitive consumer business, and that is the delivery of flowers. And on top of that, she has not taken on any venture capital money. So she has a lot to talk about in terms of what that freedom has afforded her. And that will be complemented by Mamie's experiences tackling a very different type of customer problem, but one that I think we're all very, very familiar with, almost too familiar with, and that's the billion-dollar challenge of meeting productivity. So the juxtaposition between the two will be quite interesting. Christina's business makes flowers a thing and brings us to market, and Mamie's business is a, a more of a technology-driven business, um, so she'll share that perspective. But let's start with you, Christina. Tell me a little bit about your company, and most importantly, tell me what customer problem do you think you're solving? Yeah, so um, my company is an e-commerce company that sells flowers, like you mentioned. Um, we do it a little bit differently, so instead of having hundreds of options, we limit it to one daily option and a few seasonal products. Um, and what that does is it reduces our waste by about 40% and allows us to offer designer quality arrangements at generic e-commerce prices. And why Lean Startup is so important to um, how we run our business um, is a couple different reasons. So I, first of all, I think that the Lean Startup methodology is a really great roadmap uh, for startups and companies that are just trying to um, innovate in their space um, differently. Um, to follow. I think a lot of times, um, you know, a lot of the books I was reading before starting Farm Girl Flowers were a lot of inspirational stories, but no roadmaps of how to actually implement and get things done. And I think it's really important for business owners and founders to actually have kind of a to-do list um, to check off. And so that's what it, it's done for us. And it's something also that you can just keep going back to. Um, like, honestly, before this call, I went and you know, re, you know, looked at all the points, and I'm like, oh, I need to do this a little bit better uh, moving forward. So it's something that you can also, you know, use going forward. It's not just at the startup um, phase, but you can use um, during the duration of, of your business. So let's get let's get to the the idea of your business. However, so yes. you are competing with some big names, 1-800 Flowers, Pro Flowers, etc. I use them. I mean, I send a lot of flowers, but yeah. how do you compete? In, I mean, so how did you get the idea of starting this business, and how do you compete? Yeah, um, so a lot of people thought I was absolutely nuts. It, it, I, it's basically a David and Goliath story, but you know, just the perfect story of that. Um, so 
so yeah, there are basically four companies, now three because one merged last year, that make up uh, between two-thirds and three-quarters of the entire $3.5 billion e-commerce space. Um, and then there's a lot of little guys fighting to try to compete with them. Um, so it, it's definitely been a struggle to try to compete um, in you know an apples for apples way. So you can't really do it that way. You have to do it differently. Um, you know I'm not going to be able to compete with their customer acquisition costs and things like that. So I have to look for better ways, and um, you know I have to have a better product and a better customer experience. I can't um, have you know kind of just lose my quality as the book you know in the methodology states in order to grow faster. Um, and so that's something that we really work on daily here. Um, and, you know, we're solving a problem for cu customers that I think a lot of the big guys aren't, um, and that's why I entered the space. Um, the biggest consumer problem, there's lots of industry problems, you know, with the waste that I mentioned and, you know, chemicals on the imported flowers and just the, you know, it, you know lots of back-end uh, issues that customers don't know about. They don't know where the flowers come from. Most of them don't care, honestly. But what they do care about is they want to get a better product for their money. Younger consumers especially are a lot savvier um, with their purchasing decisions. And now with technology, we can see what we send. And so, you know, WYSIWYG is very important. So, um, you know, we fixed that problem. You know, I, the problem I, you know, from the consumer side that I was fixing was I didn't like what was out there. And I suspected that if I didn't like what was out there when I would send my mom flowers in Indiana or friends that didn't live in metropolitan areas where I could, you know, spend a bunch of time looking on Yelp to find a designer florist and spend, you know, $250 on a bouquet because I was fortunate enough to be able to spend that. Um, what about the rest of the United States? And, um, you know, then I was forced to use ProFlowers or 1-800-Flowers, and I was disappointed every single time. And so I just figured, you know, if I have this experience, and probably a lot of other people do, and so let me figure out a way that will solve the back-end problems um, and also at the same time solve this consumer-facing problem as well. Great, so we'll come back to that, but let's um, turn to Mimi. Mimi, you're tackling a very, very different type of problem, but arguably something that probably all of us experience in a daily way. Talk to me about what customer problem you're solving and um, why you decided to kind of form a business around it. All right, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to share today and to learn from Christina and everyone. Um, so I started uh, Meteor actually as a different business because I had been working as a consultant and I realized that there was a gap in the market around strategy for projects. That the tools and the, the ways I was working and bringing those to um, my clients as a consultant really would be better suited as a technology tool. So I started this other business which has evolved and kind of pivoted into Meteor. And that uh, business didn't really get off the ground. Um, we had some early customers, but what we discovered was that there wasn't a really good fit for the product and the client. I mean, people didn't really know they had this problem. But along the way, uh, what we hit on was meetings. One little tiny piece of our product was meetings. And that kind of opened this whole world where I started doing research and talking to people and it, when people said like what are you doing and I said I'm working on a product to help people have more effective meetings it was like I could see little like light bulbs going off in people's eyes the the sunshine of like oh my gosh someone's trying to help me with this or the opposite reaction of like oh my god I have so many horrible meetings can I tell you about this terrible meeting I just sat through today um, really showed me that there was a serious problem here and when you start looking at the numbers around the hours wasted it was so clear that that this was probably this is probably is the biggest 
challenge that businesses face kind of writ large around productivity and impact, just the, the loss that happens in meetings. Um, and technology is such a great way to collaborate that it just made sense for us to kind of evolve our uh, project management tool into a meeting management tool. Okay. It's interesting. I've interviewed other, um, just a teaching note here, I've interviewed other people around kind of how do you know you have a problem? How do you know you have a real customer problem? And you just nailed it kind of on its head. Mm. Every time you talked about it, people's eyes roll, they kind of get, you know, very passionate or emotional or whatever. It's like I've struck a nerve that is not sales. It's sort of an innovation metric. It's it's a good yes. innovation accounting metric. People are looking at you like, help. Okay, we got a problem. Is that right? Totally. And I was having like the exact opposite reaction <laughs> with my first product. Even though I knew there was a need because I saw it with my clients um, and I was solving their need through the methods that I had. So I, I kind of went into this business thinking, okay, I know there's a need. I've seen it firsthand. I'm not just making stuff up. But when I would go and talk about it at networking events or just kind of out in the world, people would look at me like, so you're talking about something like Basecamp or like, I'm like, no, 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 this is, this is not project management, this is strategy management. And they're like, I, I don't really get it. And I was like, why doesn't anyone understand me? And then when we shifted to meetings, it, it was so clear and, and now I understand when you, when you have, a, you know, to, in terms of like a metric, when you need a metric to test, is there a real problem? Having people reflect their problem back to you in the same language that you're using is, is such a, a key way to know you're on the right track. Okay, so I'm going to turn back to Christina now because you're going to kind of balance this discussion. Christina, both of you are tackling problems that are somewhat known problems. But the solution for that problem is tricky. There are lots of different types of solutions, and bringing those solutions to market is actually relatively complicated. Knowing what solution solves really truly solves the customer problem. How did you start to test that? How did you know that your idea of bringing farm girl flowers to compete with the other big guys was something that would really actually change people, consumers' habits and mindsets around sort of the mass consumer flower industry. How do you even tackle that? Yeah, so I actually didn't know if it would, um, to be really honest. I would, like, you know, state it like it was definitely going to happen and be amazing, but, you know, we all do that. No, overconfidence. We have crystal balls. Yeah, yeah. Right? yeah exactly. Um, I did do a focus group before I officially quit my job. Um, and... Uh, asked people what, you know, if they would be willing to give up the option of choosing their flowers because back in 2010, nobody was doing limited options pretty much. Um, mm -hmm. I actually used In-N-Out Burger as a model, um, which is a very different industry. Um, now, you know, six years later, there's a lot of companies that are limiting options to provide better quality arrangements uh, or better quality um, of any kind of product um, by not having to offer 200 things and offering six instead. So it's not that hard for consumers to understand that that you know difference in, in purchasing. But back in 2010, it was, and so I did a focus group. 82% um, of people in the focus group said that they wouldn't care what the flowers were, and they could give up the choice part of the the process. And many of them were actually were relieved to give up the the choice part of it. They didn't want to sort through 116 options and waste an hour to try and find the least ugly one on the on the site. Um, but, you know, we all know what people say in a focus group and what they do when they have to actually put their money behind it um, is very different. Um, so it was still a big risk. Um, the one encouraging thing, I mean, beyond the 82%, which is definitely a big enough niche to think that it could work, um, uh, was that in the Pepsi Coke taste test that I did in the same focus group where I showed our competitors' flowers and ours, 100% chose ours. So 
um, or I say ours, the royal we, um, mine, because it was in my dining room <laughs> that I made them. Um, so, you know, that was encouraging to see. But then, um, you know, it goes back to kind of the MVP methodology, you know, with Lean Startup. You know, I didn't spend years trying to figure out how to tweak this and overthink it and over-research. I just thought, okay, well, I've created this model, one daily arrangement, customers don't choose, we choose, we use 100% American ground flowers, we deliver by bicycle, came up with this model, and then I just launched um, and from my dining room. I didn't spend a lot of time. I had $49,000 that I launched Farm Girl with. I didn't have time to spend a lot of time. So um, I just tested the market. And in the first year, I saw a lot of issues. Um, I had to pivot on a few of them quickly. Um, but that year that I was already out there was great because it helped get brand awareness going while I was learning. Um, what I needed to change on the product. So um, I didn't know that it would work, but I thought, okay, well, let me beta test it in San Francisco. Of all the consumers in the United States, I thought San Francisco is probably uh, the best one to test it in, you know, because there was a farm-to-table restaurant in every corner. So I figured, you know, it's a very similar in a different industry, but similar um, ideology. So, um, so that's what I did. I just tested it to see and um, gave myself pretty much one goal of not running out of money and <laughs> see if I could get it going before we did that, and thankfully we did. Well, this piggybacks off of one of our first questions that came in already, which is, and I, I'm most found, most people who are watching this that are new to Lean Startup and, and founding companies wonder this. How do you know, how do you find your first customers? How do you know that they're good customers to test with, and kind of what's the process for that? How do you know San Francisco is a good market for the rest of your, you know, growth strategy? Um, I just kind of bet on San Francisco. Well, number one, I lived in San Francisco, so that was easy. But number two, um, you know, San Franciscans are used to technology. They're used to ordering things online, um, you know, earlier than a lot of er the other areas in the United States. So I was, you know, that was a big thing. They're going to have to, you know, place their trust and order 100% online without seeing anything and not touching it. So that was, you know, a, a good bet for me um, to try San Francisco in that way. Also, they have a higher expendable income um, than a lot of the rest of the United States. So there are some demographic information that I pulled from that thought, well, this could be, you know, a good bet for San Francisco. Um, I didn't, to get the other question um, on how you get your first customer, my husband actually had a great idea. I was really timid at that time. And I didn't like to put myself out there that much. Um, I'm definitely more of an introvert. And um, I, I had to get, tell. Yeah, but I had to get over that really quickly. And, you know, by going to networking events every night and stuff. But he had a great idea because I had no marketing uh, cost in my financial model. And he um, actually laughs at me now because I had 24 cents per unit allotted for marketing in the original financial model, which is crazy. But he gave me the idea of putting my arrangements in coffee shops with marketing cards um, because that's really all I could afford. It cost me $20 a week in materials. And then I counted the cards that would be taken every week. And for the first two years, that's all the marketing I did. Every, you know, different neighborhood in San Francisco I had, you know, a, one of the most popular coffee shops had one of my arrangements in it. And I would give the staff free flowers in exchange for letting me put it, like, right on the bar so I knew thousands of people were going to pass it every, every day. And then I would count the cards. And if 50 to 100 cards were taken every week, then I knew it was a good one and to keep doing it because it was worth the 20 bucks. So, I love that. That's a metric, by the way. So yeah. that, you know, you're looking at, okay, and is that going up? Is that rate going up? Okay, cool. Yeah. Very good. So let's turn to Mimi. Mimi, you have a big customer problem, arguably, but there are so many solutions, so many marketplaces, and so many people who have this problem. How do you get started? Who are your first customers? And how do you stay focused? Oh, that's a lot of questions packed in. I know, that. it's a lot. Let's see. <laughs> Let's just talk about your early market, and then we'll talk about focus. Okay, so uh, early market. 
Um, in the beginning, I would basically tell everybody and their mother what I was doing and try and get them to let me come and test with them. Um, and actually, a lot of the first customers were friends of mine who either ran their own companies also or worked in bigger companies where they were in a position where they could bring in a, a tool to kind of experiment with their own team. Um, and so that's that was like the first, I'd say, probably eight to ten organizations that used our software were people that I knew who I had either either friends of mine or people I met at events who were like, oh, that's interesting. I'd, I'd be willing to try that. And if they didn't say I'd be willing, I said, are you willing? Would you be willing to let me come in and, and like teach your team about meetings? Actually, first was project management and, and strategy. And people would be like, yeah, sure, why not? Like, let's try it. It's free. It doesn't cost them anything. And they'll walk away with some nice learnings regardless. Um, and we also, just like Farm Girl Flowers, have not invested in marketing at this point. We do a lot on social media, and we have a, a pretty well-established uh, blog. But most of our marketing dollars go towards uh, kind of helping people run their meetings better through content marketing. So we don't spend a lot um, on traditional marketing yet. And our, you know, the idea is that like so many people have this problem that it's not an industry-focused issue. It's not um, a size company issue. It's not even like a role issue. Like people from kind of top to bottom in knowledge roles deal with meetings. So focusing on one customer segment has actually been one of our bigger challenges because we don't want to close any doors in some ways, and the problems are kind of the same regardless because we're talking about human problems and uh, how we work. So it was very much like, I don't care who you are, where you work, if you're willing to work with us, we want to work with you. And, and now, so how do you test, I mean, so that, you know, I, I understand that as a starting point, but then you have to start collecting data and knowing that you're on the right path. And I know yeah. you do this actively. So how do you get started when, you know, you are kind of a bit of a spaghetti on the wall, we're going to try to just get out there, but then now I need data that tells me, okay, we're in the right direction. Yeah, so that's a, a kind of brings you into a new space. So once you start to have um, a sense of different kinds of customers, you can start to segment them. So we looked at um, agencies and consultants as one of our segments. So we have a couple of teams uh, using our product who come from agencies or consulting roles where they have external clients and they're doing a lot of service work. And what we found was the kinds of things that they were asking us for in our software were not the same kinds of of functionalities or the way that they were using it as companies that were doing internal work, so consumer goods products or technology companies where their most of their meetings are happening internal to their organization. And uh, for us, being able to start to segment out what are the kinds of needs that are actually that are unique to a particular client style or client base um, has helped us start to narrow in on a target audience. Um, and even things like with financial institutions or um, lawyers and accounts where there's regulation. That was not something we had thought about initially. It was like, oh, anyone can use this. And then you start to realize, oh, no, actually, if you're going to work with a, a bank or a medical company, there's all kinds of regulation around data security and privacy and things that we're like, okay, that yes, you have meeting problems, but we're not going to help you. We're not going to be able to solve those you. right now. I get it. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so we, we've started to narrow into um, other spaces based on what customers are telling us and what we think we can actually build and solve for. Okay, very good. Now, Christina, same sort of question. How do you know, your, you know, how do you focus you, yourself, but also your company, really, to target 
an initial kind of market and a real big customer problem and not get kind of pulled away by all the stuff that you could be doing outside of that and, and kind of get started growing that way? Yeah, um, that's a great question uh, and one that I didn't do very well uh, early on. Um, I have learned that you can say no and it's better for the company to say no. Um, originally, I found that I was spending a significant portion of my time dealing with about 10% of the customer mm. base and I really had to look at it and be like, why am I doing all of these things? You know, Why are we putting um, so much emphasis in weddings and events? or subscriptions when those are going to be like less than 5% of the industry and who am I really trying to target? Who am I really trying to compete with? I'm trying to compete with the e-commerce companies in the gifting space. So the birthdays, anniversaries, things like that. So all of the time that I was spending, you know, allocating it to subscription services for businesses which have a much higher touch and a, you know, all these other things that come with it was taking all the time away from how I'm going to get it to a billion dollar company is, you know, staying focused on the gifting space and going after that target customer. And, you know, originally I just felt bad saying no when people would want me to do this and do this and do these pop-ups and do this farmer's market and do this, like, fancy retail install, blah, 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 and all this stuff, or, you know, plants for their, you know, big fancy, you know, showrooms. And I'm like, but we don't do that. Why am I doing this, you know? Right. So once I got clear on what my focus was, who my customer was, and how I was going to be able to get to the billion dollars in a timeline that I am comfortable with, uh, that made it much easier for me to say no to the ones that don't. And then also because, you know, I'm a yes person like a lot of people, especially women tend to be, right? Um, I then just came up with great people that I'd like to recommend. Um, I love supporting other female founders. So if there's ways that I can, you know, send business in areas that I don't, you know, that isn't right for Farm Girl to other female founders, it makes me feel really good in the process. Awesome. So let's talk a little bit about how, so the topic that kind of comes up in this sphere too is the idea of maintaining your freedom. So venture capitalists tend to be focusing agents, if you will, right? So they've got a very specific target and they're going to keep you on that target. They also have other opinions. What is it meant to not take venture capital money? Why haven't you? And also, how do you think your business has been impacted by that decision? Yeah, this has been the biggest learning, overall the biggest learning, and I love talking about this because it doesn't get talked about enough, especially in Silicon Valley and areas where startups are very prevalent, New York, Boston, and other areas. Um, I didn't choose not to take venture capital, to be really honest. Um, I wanted to raise capital, and I got really scared a couple years ago when I saw so many other um, strikingly similar, I think would be a legal word that I'm allowed to use, um, strikingly <laughs> similar companies with very similar models, very similar look, on, look and feel to products, um, and going out there and raising, you know, eight, twelve, twenty million dollars. Um, you know, mostly tech guys with very fancy pedigrees. I didn't go to college. I, you know, learned everything from books, like the lean startup, you know, and um, I got really scared and I thought, I have to go raise capital. Um, and also, every networking event that I mentioned earlier that you have to go to all the time as a founder to get your name out there, um, I would visibly see that the first, second, or third question anybody would ask me had to do with funding. You know, what round are we on? Who's invested? And as soon as I would say we're bootstrapped, they would really look over my shoulder for someone more important to talk to because it was just assumed that we weren't going to be successful. And then I would have to I find myself like qualifying, you know, our business of like, hey, we're the 14th fastest growing, you know, company in San Francisco. I would like really like, you know, have to qualify us as, as we're successful. And got really scared. I made some poor decisions for the company based on being scared. I tried to raise capital. I couldn't. 
Um, I was unsuccessful at it. And then I finally just stepped back and had to really think about why I wanted to raise capital. And what I found was the reasons that I wanted to raise capital were all based on my ego. We didn't need capital. We don't. I mean, a lot of companies that are raising capital, you know, that are not like Mamie's with technology, you know, where you need a lot of money to, to develop that software and all that. But a lot of, you know, especially consumer-facing retail and things like that, probably don't need capital to start. Um, and But we do that because we think in order to be successful, you know, success equals funding, especially in Silicon Valley. It just does. The first, every conversation you have is like, oh, we're on, you know, Series C and we've raised this much from this person that's very fancy and makes us really, you know, validated in what we're doing. And it's all ego-driven. I don't need capital to grow. We will grow slower. We will grow the right way. We will, you know, at the end of the day, I'll own probably 95% and my team will own the other 5% and it'll be wonderful. <laughs> and, you know, if we can get it to a billion dollar company with a 23% net profit margin and that kind of ownership, that's a pretty successful company, you know? And we're profitable and the benchmarks for a successful company shouldn't be how much... I think we've lost you there for one second. I will say that Christina oh. is in her factory, so if you hear any noise around her, uh, hopefully she'll, at the end she'll show us where she is. Very cool. Yeah. Um, okay, so Mamie, let's turn to you, okay? I don't know if you, I don't think you've raised any funding. You're in a little bit of a different stage as a company, but you have a, you know, a history in this, in this space as an entrepreneur. What have you learned about kind of how to maintain your vision as a founder, as a leader, and what that means kind of for your company and your future somewhat. So whether or not you take funding or what you do next in terms of capitalizing the business. Yeah, so we also have not taken any outside funding, although I come from a very different background. Um, I come from a family of entrepreneurs, and we have a very successful family business, Gojo, the inventor of Purell hand sanitizer. So we have self-funded this, but uh, not in a, a tr traditional bootstrapping kind of way. So um, we have kind of been afforded the same kind of freedoms to, to make choices and make decisions. Um, and my dad and my sister and some of our business uh, employees are, kind of are, are my advisory board, I guess is how you would say it. And so they help me make the big strategic kind of decisions. And they're the ones who are looking over my shoulder, but from a very different place than a traditional VC or um, other kind of institutional funder would. Um, and there are things that are great about that, and there are things that are challenging about that as well. Uh, but in terms of um, kind of where we go and, and why we chose this model, so our business is the kind of business that would likely get funding in terms of being a technology business and a really big uh, open space where there's tools like this don't really exist. I mean, there's a handful, but there isn't a really market leader in this space um, in terms of collaboration, um, business productivity tools. So we would be able to make a good case, not to say that we would absolutely raise money if we tried. I mean, there's lots of other factors that go into it, but we're well suited for that kind of investment. And we decided as a family that we want to maintain the control. Our family business, Gojo, is also 100% family owned, and that's been really important to us because it allows you to make certain choices that investors would not necessarily agree with. Um, and, and let's talk about those choices when we think about lean startup. And the first that comes to mind, in my in my view, is you have the ability to kind of laser focus on the customer. You have more freedom to really think about the customer and the customer problem and the solution that solves for that versus constantly answering to funders who want to see numbers and metrics and traction and things like that. 
talk to me about kind of what the customer means to you as a business that's, that's kind of relatively free from outside influence. Yeah. Well, I think what it actually does is kind of two things. So one, with Lean Startup, a lot of it is about learning and setting yourself some learning objectives, creating tests and hypotheses and experimenting, putting stuff out there, putting products out and seeing what the response is and talking to your customers. And that journey in of itself, while each little cycle can be fast, the overall process can sometimes take a very long time. And if you have, uh, you know, someone putting pressure on you who's saying, I need to see results, uh, what they're not looking for is I want to see what you learned and how you're going to take that learning and turn it into the next phase. So for me, that's where kind of having some freedom and, um, and the lean startup method go hand in hand because you can't just jump in and expect results on day one. You really need to be in a, a mindset of experimentation where you know you want to ultimately get to some results, and actually that's a whole other question around like, when do you know it's good enough? But you need to kind of be in a space and in a mindset where you're not going to expect that you're going to hit it 100% on the first try. And if you do, you probably waited too long or you didn't set yourself up properly because you shouldn't be hitting it 100%. You should be in that space of learning when you're, especially when you're a young startup like we are. It's interesting, even with big companies that I work with, I always think of the executives kind of having the hardest time with the culture of learning. But I am learning, actually, that oftentimes employees and more junior professionals want perfection because this is their career on their line, on the line here. They want to see traction. They want to see direction. How do you lead a culture of, of learning and good enough, if you will, data um, at, you know, all the way down the line? How do you bring people along that journey? So I can only speak to this in my business, which yeah. is about 14 people. So it's much okay. very different than a big 10,000-person company. Um, but for us, it's it's a couple of things. So one is helping people on our team um, through a variety of ways understand that we are not our customer. Even though we use our product, we're not our customer. And so we need to be constantly learning and bringing in the voice of the customer to our product conversations, our marketing conversations, whatever it is that we're doing. Um, and we do that by um, talking to our customers a lot. We record our um, customer interviews or customer testing sessions so that they're available for anybody in the company to watch. So if you're a developer, you know, engineers have a wonderful mindset around how things get organized and how things should work on a, in, a, in an app, which is often different than how the user experiences it. So for an engineer to be able to sit in or watch a, a customer actually use the product gives them a whole new understanding for what it means to develop a product for people to I mean, it's the best user experience. Um, so part of it is making all of that available for people. Yeah, and so how do you, I mean, so uh, do you run a dashboard meeting every week, or what's the culture of learning within your organization? How do you employ this as a process? So we, um, we use something called Gecko. We actually made our own little Gecko icon on our hip chat um, little emojis. So when we make decisions, we can call something good enough to go. Okay, and I love we, it. And we often employ this, it's good enough to go for now, and we will learn. That's like the implication. It's good enough, and we'll learn. We'll learn from our customers. We'll learn from the metrics of usage. Um, we'll learn by going out and talking and or exploring other competitor products. but. 
this idea that something just has to be good enough to get us to a learning point um, has become kind of part of our language. And again, we have our little emoji, so when we're chatting about things, we can be like, okay, we're all agreeing, this is get-go. Put the little emoji there so we can move on and get on to the next thing, and we can test this through a variety of different ways. Great, so Christina, how about you? So you have a lot of different customer touch points. You can't necessarily be part of all of those, but I imagine you'd, you'd want to be. Um, how do you lead a culture of lean startup uh, at your organization, of yeah, data? So, yeah, so um, we're fortunate that we do everything in-house here, um, including customer service. So, um, and we all sit in one very big raw warehouse next to each other. So there's no offices or anything like that. It's just we're all next to each other. So really, a lot of our managers can even hear customer service on the phone and know what's going on, but we also use Slack channels, and we'll have a different channel for every different thing. You know, you know, if they're having technology issues with the website, there's one for that. There's a quality issue of flowers Slack channel. So um, if there's a delivery one for local delivery, and then the managers of that department stay like in real time, know exactly what's going on, um, and it, it helps us because there's no you know, oh, we didn't know about this for three months, and meanwhile our sales dropped to 20%. You know, um, it's, we know immediately what's going on. Um, you know, if we're having a quali flower quality issue, it's something that we take very seriously, and then we figure out what the problem is, and we fix it immediately. So things like that, um, you know, we just have a very open communication. We do weekly meetings, but we, you know, it's, it's more of a on-the-go, um, you know, we're, you know, a team of 77 with five managers and the rest are all worker bees, basically, and amazing team members that are making the flowers and answering all the calls and delivering the flowers and packing the boxes, and so we all just work really closely together. But it sounds like you use some technology to solve some of your challenges, so talk to me about maybe an example where, you know, there has been a quality issue and somebody has complained, how have you kind of turned the ship and made sure there's a response to that uh, in the appropriate way? Yeah, um, so like I mentioned, we do a Slack channel, and then the customer service manager will keep the communication really open with the design manager and let her know, hey, this is exactly what's going on. These are the flowers that are having issues based on the pictures that customers are sending us, which we always ask for. And we found, um, you know, a recent example is we just moved into a new warehouse, and it's two levels as opposed to being one level where our last warehouse was. And immediately we saw within a couple weeks our you know customer response negative response rate went from one less than one percent to six percent almost which is wow. huge and yeah. so you know what we did we fixed it immediately within two and a half weeks we had it completely solved you know I followed the life of the flower from when it arrived from the farm to when it actually got boxed and shipped or hand delivered to the customer um, tested it so they even came to people that I sent them to without my team knowing so then I could test them um, and then found exactly what the issue was. I mean, it was something so stupid of a speed bump that we had to take all of our huge carts of flowers after receiving received them before going to the processing line that was actually sloshing water on all the heads of these flowers, which then you don't notice right away, but then three to four hours later, they have brown spots all over it. So probably way too much minute detail there, but um, figured out what the problem was, changed the entire structure of the warehouse and how we're receiving, processing, and shipping the flowers, and within two and a half weeks, it went back down to under 1% quality issues. So wow. within a total of a month from the customers complaining to it going back down to under 1%, we fixed the issue because the communication was so open using Slack channels. So, so it sounds like one of our, our, our viewers is wondering, are, it sounds like you have a customer service manager now, but were you the customer service manager at any point in your company? And Kind of how did you wear all of the multiple hats that you had to wear initially while you built an actual flower business? 
yes, I am so lucky now that I actually have five managers, but I'm also a little unlucky in the way that I'm also the CEO, the COO, the CMO, the CTO, the CFO, pretty much all of those hats, the C-suite and above. Um, but I have amazing floor managers um, that work really well together. Um, it is, I feel, a little bit of a luxury that I have a department head for every department now, which is great. Um, so it's not me having to be the only one getting stuff done. Um, so that's awesome. But for the first two years, it was out of my dining room, and I did everything. I did, I made, bought the flowers. I got the three in the morning, bought the flowers, made the flower arrangements, you know, did some of the deliveries myself, although I had a career company that did that. I did all the customer service. I did all the sales. I did the marketing. I did everything. Um, now I have some help with that, um, which does free up my time. You know, it's, a year ago, I was still on the design floor at least four days out of the week. Um, now I'm not making arrangements every day, so I can actually focus on some of the higher level things. On growth and, and getting Indiana. Yeah. Okay, so Mamie, let's talk about your business for a second in terms of you're in beta mode right now and you're about to launch um, into full uh, mode. You know, it's interesting because your, your solution begets quite a number of business models, a lot of different pricing methodologies, et cetera. How have you started to test that and kind of where do you see your testing once you, you launch? How'd you pick a business model? Oh, well, so the business model was fairly easy. The pricing was much more challenging. Um, I can only really imagine. Yeah. Software as a service is a pretty established business model now, and so it was really clear to us that that was the model we were going to use, a monthly subscription. Um, and then there were some kind of elements within that that we had to figure out in terms of were we going to price per seat, were we going to, uh, like per user, were we were going to price um, per, like a bundle of meetings. Um, so, you know, 10 meetings, unlimited users, but 10 meetings a month. Uh, were we going to price um, in bundled users, so you get 10 seats for $50 and 20 seats for X dollars. We get a price for meeting creators, but not for meeting collaborators. There were lots of questions that came up when we started to dig into pricing. Um, and for the first uh, two years, we actually didn't, well, 18 months, we didn't even have pricing. It was free. We had a little button that said, you know, uh, request access, and so you would have to email us if you wanted to join. But we basically let everybody who requested access join. We just didn't want to have to build a whole sign-up system. We were trying to move more quickly, and so we just made you request access. We'd give you an account, and then you could get started. And it was all free. We're just like, we just need people to use this, so get started. Uh, and then we were like, okay, now we actually need to test what people pay for this. Um, and we made uh, some choices around allowing people to use it for free, but not free forever, uh, in terms of growth. So some tools like Slack are kind of free forever, up to like some 10,000 people or something crazy. Uh, we decided we can't afford to do that. Um, but we did want to allow small teams, especially startups where you're establishing the culture of your company or you're a small nonprofit and you don't really have a budget for paying for these kinds of tools. We wanted to allow people to get started with those and so we decided to price, uh, put a price barrier at person number six. So first five people are free. Anyone can get online, sign up. It's free for five people. And then when it came to what is the actual price, we did a lot of looking at competitors. It's not a great way to price, but it's hard in the technology space because you don't really have a cost of goods sold. So if you're selling flowers, you can say, how much do my materials cost? How much does my labor cost? How much is the delivery and fees and you know all of those kinds of elements and come up with some like, this is our cost of goods sold. And then we layer on additional costs. Right? It's not the same with technology. If you, know, if you put 10 people on or one person on, it doesn't really change the impact on my costs. 
which makes it very hard to figure out what's the right price. Um, and so we looked it's at our value, right? right. <laughs> so we're talking about value, right? And that this is actually funny because um, I was at the Lean Startup Conference last year with with my little booth and was you know showing my goods and trying to get people to sign up for uh, for our product. And the range of responses I got was really funny since we were selling at that time five dollars per person, uh, which is still what the price is now if you sign up before our beta phase ends. It's five dollars per person once you get to person number six. Um, and I had some people who would be like, $5 a person? Like, are you nuts? If you save me from one meeting, you just saved like $200 of my time. Like, you should be charging like $50 a person for this stuff. And then other people would tell me, $5 a person? That's so much. Like, why isn't it free? And I'm like, what are you talking about? How can you build a sustainable business if you are free all the time? Um, so it's really hard in software to figure out exactly what the right price is. And so we mostly um, priced based on what we thought the market would bear, even though we think our value is actually much higher. Okay, and so that takes a lot of kind of guts, one. But how did you use data to kind of drive? I mean, it sounds like you set up a booth at the Lean Startup Conference and got some data, but seemed very kind of heterogeneous data. Um, how do you make a decision in that capacity? I and mean, how do you drive that from real customer feedback? Yeah, so that's a great question that we are in the midst of doing right now. Um, and what we're finding, at least initially, is that we're getting a lot of people signing up for free and using it with small teams of five people or less, but not a lot of people who are shifting up to add that sixth person mm -hmm. and start to pay. And that there are lots of reasons why that could be happening. Maybe this is a tool that's just better suited for small teams. Maybe if we want to get above that six person, we need to be selling um, a bigger bundle, so selling into a department and selling 30 seats at a time or 50 seats at a time. So we're exploring and trying to understand what is stopping people from crossing that pay threshold initially. Um, we also don't know if it's a matter of time, that it might take six months for a five-person team to be ready to share it broader in their organization. We don't have enough runway behind us to know kind of what are the longer term trends with how people adopt the technology solution. So our, we're collecting lots of data and we're trying to come up with hypotheses and then figure out ways to test them. Um, and the other piece of it is uh, when you price higher, so when we switch out of our beta mode, our price is basically going to double. Um, and now we have an opportunity to experiment. When you set your price at $5, you can't really experiment because nobody really cares if it's $5 or $4 or $2. That's not, that doesn't make sense. But if we price at $9 or $10 a person, now we can try different kinds of experiments with if we offer a sale and we reduce our price to $7, does that make a difference? Or if we offer a, a um, special package, if you put on 10 people within the first month, you get a month free, does that change? So once we have a price that I think is a little mm -hmm. bit more established, we will be able to run experiments and test and see how does pricing, um, how does user adoption change when our pricing changes. Okay, interesting. Now, Christina, you don't. It sounds like you don't have a ton of room around business model. You have very steep competitors with prices in the market. How have you thought about your business model and kind of pivoted around your learning uh, throughout your business? Yeah. So. Um, it is much easier, like Mamie said, because I can, you know, very, I can quantify like our cogs and our expenses uh, much more easily, um, and I can see what I need to charge. But then on the flip side of that, even though I need to charge that, I can't always charge that because right. our competitors, problem. Yeah, yeah, are very funded and they're willing to take a bit of a hit to try to gain market share. 
Um, and they know they can because when you have, you know, $20 million in the bank, it's a little bit different than when you don't. So um, we've had to, you know, I definitely am constantly tweaking the numbers, trying to figure out, like, you know, instead of, you know, this markup, can I go down a little bit and can I make the labor a little bit less on this? And I'm always tweaking to try to see, like, what we can do on that. Um, we added non-perishable products, gift boxes and things last year that really helped because there's a lot less labor on those. Um, and, you know, we're just constantly trying to, like, diversify our product offerings in a way that will allow us to stay competitive with our counter counterparts. Um, and, you know, we are still slightly higher than a lot of them because we don't, you know, we, we can't take a hit. We have to be profitable, you know, and, and I'm also making the choices to, you know, have our team members full-time with full benefits, and I need to be able to pay for those. And um, so, you know, we adapt, you know, an early story is, you know, we, you know, originally I only had one product size, and I couldn't figure out why people were only ordering for themselves and not for gifts for people, and so I did another focus group, and I found out that, consumers, you know, just something that I hadn't thought of, um, that consumers didn't want to send a gift to someone that they would know how much they spent on it. And if I only had one size, there was one price point. And so then I, you know, changed that really quickly and offered different sizes and we coded it so the consumers didn't know what size they got, um, you know, and stuff like that. So we pivoted to listen to feedback from the customers and make those tweaks while trying to stay competitive with our, you know, all the competitors out there. Okay. So I could talk to both of you endlessly, but we have a lot of questions from people who are watching. So I'd start with you, Christina. One of the questions is, what do you, it's a big question, what do you recommend for people starting out in the industry, in an industry, and wanting to do a similar approach to your Farmerville approach? What are your kind of learnings? Yes. Um, so just do it, basically, and don't spend too long thinking about it, overthinking about it, thinking that everything has to be perfect to get it going. Just try it, see if people respond to it well, tweak it quickly, and in the amount of time that you would have spent rewriting that business plan and that financial model 14 times, you could have gotten some brand awareness and some really good data and feedback from customers out there on what they like and don't like that would do that for you. Um, the other thing is um, do your own work. Um, I know like a lot of, you know, just do it differently. Don't just copy someone else's. Um, I, I just really firmly believe in this. Um, you know, we have a lot of strikingly similar companies out there, and I just wish that people had more pride in doing things um, themselves a bit. So, you know, come up with something that really sets yourself apart. Don't just say, well, this person's doing well. Let me just go copy this. Really, you know, if they're doing well, you can do better. You know, you can come up with something better um, than what they're doing. And so really, really do that. <laughs> um, and... Also, uh, know your numbers. And I know this sounds kind of like it's, it's a basic thing, but I know so many people that just don't know their numbers. I'm in our credit card statements and our bank statements every day, probably three times a day. Like, know what you're spending money on. Know if it's something's not working to fix it quickly. Don't be afraid of failure. Um, you know, we opened Los Angeles last year and we closed Los Angeles in <laughs> last year, four and a half months later. It wasn't working and it was things that we couldn't change. So close it down quickly and move on to something that will work. So just don't beat a dead horse, basically, which is probably a really bad term to you, sorry. Um, but well, I think the way Eric says it is, don't persevere the plane into the ground. Yeah. Pivot quickly, right? Exactly. Okay. Pivot quickly is probably a better business term for it. <laughs> That's the farm in me coming out. <laughs> Love it. Now, Mimi, we've gotten a similar question for you. And of what are your learnings so far building a software product? A lot of our viewers are building software products. And what are your concerns about launch? Okay, so software first. Um, 
if you are not a technologist, there is so much to learn that uh, it's it's hard to even know what kind of business you're really building when you aren't a technology person yourself. So my background's not in technology. I'm on the business side. Uh, finding a tech partner was a whole other thing we can talk about later. Um, but uh, you know, in my mind, like design a layout, tell them what the web button should do, right? This goes like this, and that this is what should happen next, and then make it happen. Um, I didn't really understand all of the complexity and how if we make a decision about the information architecture now, that's going to have long-term impact on what the software can and can't do or how long it's going to take to make the software do what we want it to do later on. So there are some big things that I just didn't really know when I was getting started. Um, and I was very lucky in finding uh, two people very early on, about five months in. First five months was just me by myself doing mock-ups and getting feedback on, on designs and, and you know, clickable prototypes and things you can do really cheaply and easily without any kind of technology solution. But then once I had a technology partner, I was very lucky that they were very understanding of the fact that I didn't really know what I was doing or what I was talking about um, and helping to make sure that we are making good choices along the way. Uh, so that's like a whole big piece around starting technology is just there's so much you don't know if you're not on that side that you want to make sure you're making good decisions. Um, and I know there's a five-figure investments. I mean, I, so I've been in a similar type of startup, actually, tackling a very similar challenge. And you can lose money on things that have no value very quickly if you make yes. decisions too early, right? So how have you oh, kind of yeah. covered that? Yeah, uh, I say not very well. <laughs> so our first product that we built for the 18 months, we carved off probably 90% of it. Uh, that basically is completely not in use anymore. And we, because we only took that little meeting piece that we had built, and almost the rest of the tool just completely we shut it down and said, this is not working. Let's stop investing in it, and let's just focus on meetings. And unfortunately, that we can never get that back. And so it, some of it's a little bit of a mindset of, do you think of that as being waste, or do you think of that as being learning? And for us, I like to think of that as being learning. And I don't know that we could have gotten here without having built all of that. Um, it's possible, but we'll never know. But going forward, uh, it's a lot about how you prioritize and trying to really understand what's what's a small change that takes you know an hour for a developer to impact and, and make that change, and what things are actually really really big decisions that take a lot of time, even if it looks like a small change to the customer, and making sure that we're being thoughtful and strategic about those kinds of choices and not just building because we think we can, um, and making sure that our quality stays high. And then I know there was a question about uh, kind of preparing for a launch. Um, and can you? I don't remember what the question was, but I remember it was something around launching. <laughs> what are your concerns about launch? Sort of what are you kind of what are your thoughts? Um, it says um, um, even uh, excuse me. As you get ready to launch, kind of what do you need to be prepared for? What do you feel like you need to be prepared for? Yeah, so our hope with launch, so for us, this switch from kind of beta period to launch, it doesn't really mean a whole lot uh, from a kind of any st structured standpoint. For us, what it means is that we believe that our product is good enough to say that we are officially a product. It's not complete. Uh, we still have a whole long list of things we want to add, but we know that we are at a point where our current customers are getting a lot more value than $5 per person per month. And so we're ready to start investing in marketing efforts and um, increasing our customer adoption. Um, and so we're increasing our price, and we're starting to invest much more heavily in marketing efforts. So I feel like the things that we are thinking about in terms of getting ourselves prepared, one of 
of it is the customer service. Up until this point, we have maybe one customer service inquiry per week. Most of the time, uh, people are really happy with our software, and there's nothing, no problems with it. And if they have, if there's an issue, if it comes in through a support ticket, and I answer it, or one of my colleagues answers it, sometimes I pick up the phone and call someone at the company because it's just much easier to talk them through it than to go back and forth by email. But we know if we, you know, increase our customer base by 10 times, now we're not going to be able to do that so quickly, you know, 20 minutes, get the customer's ticket in, respond into within 20 minutes and be done. So there's a lot of things that we're thinking about around customer support um, and, and technology support, kind of how does our technology scale, what are the factors of, of having bigger teams on our software, are there pieces that we need to make sure we're, we're prepared to address. Uh, so that's, that's what's kind of what's on our mind. That, and so I'll stay with you because that, that piggybacks to another question. It's an interesting thing because it, it, it parallels both enterprises that are trying to use Lean Startup and startups. The idea that you have to start testing using the Lean Startup method internally around process and team growth. So the question really is from the viewer around how do you grow your teams as you grow your business? How do you keep them open and in a learning mindset? And then my piggyback is how do you test that that's actually happening as you're growing? It's challenging. Yeah, so we're in... I'm sure is your answer, like, okay, shut up. Yeah, but row, but then what? How do you know you're still learning as a group? Yeah, so we do a few things. One is in terms of hiring, we don't hire someone until we have to, until we're basically doing it to a point where it's starting to impact the rest of our work. So anything that comes up, like with UX design, for a long time uh, we were hacking together UX design, user experience design, because enough of us on my team had some experience with it, and then it got to the point where we said, actually, no, now we really need somebody to do this, because it's becoming a, a job in of itself that's keeping us from doing other really important work. So we tend to hire kind of later down the pipe when we really know that this is now a job that needs to get done by somebody who has the right experience. Um, and then in terms of keeping those mindsets, so one, we hire for people who have a learning mindset as part of our hiring questions that we ask around, kind of tell us, tell us about a time when you did something and then what did you learn from that, how did you apply that learning. So it's part of making sure that we're bringing people on who have a learning mindset. And then we periodically have uh, review meetings. So we just had one on our usage of HipChat. How are we as a team with 14 people all over the world, how are we using HipChat that is helping us communicate, build culture, build relationships? How could we be using it better? How is it a distraction? And how can we minimize this chat app as a distraction within our work? Um, and so we're continually assessing our own practices and trying to learn how to improve ourselves. Thanks. And Christine, I'll turn to you. So you've grown your business. How have you kept, um, how have you learned about kind of growing as a learning organization? How do you keep yourselves to it? How do you stay, you know, focused on learning but still grow in new markets? I know you've grown, you know, across the U.S. and you still have to keep customer data coming in and make decisions on that customer data. How do you keep your teams doing that? Yeah, um, so that's been challenging, to be really honest. Uh, you know, we've grown pretty quickly. So, you know, a year ago, we had less than half the employees we have now. We probably had, I think, 32 and wow. now 77. So we're growing really rapidly. And um, what I want to make sure we don't lose is the culture in which I built Farm Girl initially. And that's very challenging to kind of keep that culture. Um, really, our culture is very a scrappiness, which I'm really proud of. We're very scrappy. Not that word. Yeah, very, very scrappy. We drink out of a hose here, for real. Um, and uh, just keeping the, like, hey, we're all on one team. We are all working for the same goal. Um, it, just as a aside, a couple weeks ago, I got kind of frustrated that 
you know, I was hearing for the first time, oh, that's not my job, that's not my department. I never heard that before here because mm -hmm. everybody was very inclusive and collaborative and getting things done. And so I took all of our managers' job descriptions and I erased everything on them and I just wrote problem solve and problem solve care and get stuff done. <laughs> and that's the only thing on the job description. Um, which I don't know if that's a very good thing or not, and I don't know if I should mention that. But it actually you know, and then we had a meeting around it and, you know, explained why this is the, you know, culture we need to keep building because we have brought on new managers and we brought in a lot of new team members and, um, you know, so it's a constant learning experience. You know, we try things, they work, they don't work. You know, if, you know, I'm trying a new senior designer program now to give a lot of our designers more ownership and to feel more a part of the process and seeing if that'll work and, you know, ask me in three months and I'll let you know if it's working or not. So we just try things and, um, you know, it, it's, I feel like I've been a little bit reactive because we've had to grow so quickly and so now I'm really trying to put more thought into it and figuring out better programs and better ways to make sure that the communication is very good, the transparency is good with the employees and our team members and um, that everybody feels like a value add to the organization as a whole. Great. Okay, so we've had the opportunity to get into quite a number of details here, but the fortunate part of all of this is that both of you are coming to the Lean Startup Conference, is that right? Okay, so we'll get to carry on. One, we'll get to learn about what happened with your job description here, yeah. and we'll also get to learn about Mamie's launch at the Lean Startup Conference. So this is very exciting. I look forward to you know, seeing both of you there and seeing your talks, and thank you very much for your time. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. This was super fun. Yeah. Thank you. Bye. All right. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. This wraps up our show. Please join us again for the next one on September 15th. In the meantime, visit leanstartup.co for more information on Lean Startup Week in San Francisco on October 31st to November 6th.